Our Father and our God, that is the prayer of our heart as we come to the time when we open up your word. We are thankful that the author of the Bible is here with us. The Spirit of God is speaking to us. Oh Lord, make things plain and empower, convict, regenerate, convert, renew, and show us Christ. We long to be like him. Father, I pray that that process will go forward today in our worship together. And it's in the matchless name of our Savior we offer up this prayer saying amen. Jeopardy fans were stunned this past week when all three contestants could not answer what appeared to be a rather simple question. I'm not a Jeopardy fan. Uh, I just noticed the buzz online. Apparently the question came from the opening line of the Lord's Prayer for $200. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father who art in heaven, this be thy name. Fill in the blank for this. Laura, Shuresh, Joe stood in silence, and if you watch the clip, they appeared to be stunned. No one even took a guess until finally the host, Mayam Bialik, answered, hallowed, hallowed be thy name. Well, Twitter exploded. People thought, you know, here are these amazingly intelligent people and they had no clue. What a sad commentary on our culture, someone said. Bob responded this way, how can those Jeopardy nerds not know the answer? (laughs) Have they never listened to Iron Maiden? (laughs) Who had a hard rock metal, or is it metal? Hard rock metal song, 1982, entitled Hollywood Be Thy Name. Well, that's the first I heard of that. It doesn't sound too promising. That's a sad commentary on her culture. But I began to think about it. Do we know who our father is? And do we know what it is to hallow his name? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us some help in our study in the book of Romans as we come to chapter 4. And I would just like to put on the screen for us the verse 17. We're going to actually start a little before that, but we're going to work our way through it. And Romans chapter 4 and verse 17. Do we have those today? There it is. Which says, as it is written, quoting from the book of Genesis 17, God says, I have made you, Abraham, a father of many nations. By the way, happy Father's Day to all of you and to Abraham, who is called a father six times in this particular chapter. God says, I have made you a father, which, by the way, that's the only way you can become a father is if God so chooses and blesses. He goes on to say, That he is, Abraham is, our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. 
the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And so I thought about the fatherhood of Abraham as the father of those who believe, the father of those who have faith, and thought about the question, well, what about Abraham's God? Who is he? Who is our father? And then the question, how did Abraham believe in that God who came to him in amazing grace? So we go to verse 13, Romans 4.13. And this is basically a summary of the first 12 verses of the chapter which we've already discussed. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. And here's the theme of the text where promise is going to be mentioned over and over and implied time and time again. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring, there's another interesting question, who are the offspring of Abraham? Who can rightly say Abraham is their father? We'll try to answer that question. And it was not through the law that he received the promise that he would be the heir of the world. Now that's an interesting statement that really breaks the bounds of what has previously been predicted. Heir of the world. No, it's not through the law, but it's through the righteousness that comes by faith. So in this summary statement, we're basically going over some of the key points that have been mentioned. He'll mention some of them again. But I just want to remind you that the law cannot impart life. That was not its purpose. Galatians 3.21, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law of Moses. But that was not its purpose. For we read in Romans chapter 3, that the purpose of the law is to bring a knowledge of sin it cannot save. And since the law actually came 430 years later than the promise, the law is subordinate to faith and to the promise. And so the scriptures tell us that righteousness prior to the law takes precedent over the law, and the law is not the means by which you and I can be saved. That ought to be a wonderful message to our weary souls, because there's no way you and I can keep the law of God. That's grace. Look at verse 14. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, emptied of its value. And the promise, worthless, actually totally destroyed. Get this, because the law brings wrath. Now he's speaking to Jewish people, and this is going to just blow their minds. Paul loved to do that. He loved to make shocking statements that would wake people up. That's actually a very good preaching technique because people have a tendency to fall asleep. 
And so to say something that will wake them up is a good thing. I remember hearing a preacher one time starting out his sermon saying, all the Bible is not true. And he gave it a minute. And you could see people literally stopping what they were doing, setting up. What in the world? Are we going to have to fire this guy? And then he said, all that the Bible says is accurate, but not everything that the Bible says is true because the devil is quoted, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, you will not die. That's not true. And you could hear a collective, (sighs) and people went back to sleep. But it was... It was a good way to wake them up for a moment. That's what Paul is doing. The law brings wrath. Now there's a missing link in his logic, which he's going to discuss later on in chapter seven. But basically, he is saying that the law, which was given by God, and the promise given by God cannot work together. They operate, uh, they're incompatible. They operate separately. Law language says you shall obey. Grace language or promise language, God says, I will deliver or save. The one demands obedience, the second demands our faith. And if you look at the chapter, what Paul is actually saying is, is the fact that law and wrath and transgression are all connected. The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. A society that has no law against stealing has no thieves. And it wasn't until the law came that we were able to see our sin. Our sin was there, but now the law magnified it. And not only that, the law incited in us a desire to Break it. Right? You're going into the kitchen and your sibling says to you, mom told us we can't have any cookies out of the cookie jar. And you say, cookie jar? I didn't even know there was one. Well, we haven't told you that there is one. But mom says, don't take cookies out of the cookie jar. And now your task is to find that cookie jar. Because the very prohibition incites in you a desire to have what you've been told you cannot have. So the law actually gives light to transgression. The law turns sin into transgression, which interestingly enough is a conscious violation of a boundary line of limits And when you transgress, you provoke wrath. The law turns sin into transgression, which brings upon us the wrath of God. And that's why you can say law brings wrath. It doesn't bring life. But now Paul gets somewhat positive in verse 16 when he says, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Now, so, for so long, the Jews felt that Abraham's offspring was a reference to them. And maybe another nationality that had Abraham as their forefather, 
But now we realize Abraham's offspring are not only those who are from the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. And there's that term again, father Abraham. So the offspring of Abraham is anyone who by faith believes like Abraham, whether you are of the law, Jewish, or whether you don't have the law, Gentile. Paul is bringing it all together. This is a, the promise is by faith, based on grace, and guarantees that Abraham's offspring will have life. So when you have the negative wrath, law, transgression, now you have the positive promise, faith, grace. So let me ask the question, what about Abraham's God? Who is our father? And this text begins to unfold it. I would just say simply, first of all, he is the God of astounding grace. Amazing grace. Grace, incredible, unbelievable grace. Think of the grace that came to Abraham while he was a Gentile. He did nothing to deserve it. He was an idolater as was his family. And grace pulled him out of Ur of the Chaldees. That, my friend, is amazing grace. Grace reaches us when we are sinful, not after we've cleaned ourselves up. Grace finds us where we are. Remember a tax collector by the name of Levi, who also has the name Matthew and wrote the first book of the New Testament? Jesus called him by grace. And he had not given up his profession. Jesus called him at his tax table, right there in the booth. And grace touched his soul and said, come and follow me. And to the religious people of the day, that grace was so offensive. Why in the world, Jesus, are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? You could hear the disdain in their voice. But while we were yet sinners, what's the rest of it? Christ died for us. My friend, you cannot clean yourself up. There's nothing you can do to make yourself approved in God's sight. There's nothing that making you can do to make yourself savable. You are as you are as broken and as lost as a person can be. Even if your sin isn't as bad as someone else you may measure yourself by, that makes no difference. You are broken and lost and without God and ungodly and without hope and grace. The God of grace steps in and says, I have a promise for you. Believe and righteousness will be yours. James Edwards says to say to the world that is fall, to say that the world is fallen and sinful is to say that the world is the object of his grace. 
Sometimes we like to criticize people like three contestants who can't answer a simple question that we could answer. If I were there, I would have got that answer right. I must be more righteous than they are. We begin to think in our minds, don't we? For God so loved the world. That word, the Greek word for world is the world system, an ungodly, corruptible system. It not only means everyone in the world, it means the system that dominates the world. For God so loves the ungodly that he sent his son. That, my friend, is grace. Grace gives. Faith takes. And righteousness is the result. Guarantee. Boy, underline that word. Do you have the guarantee that you are a child of God? The guarantee is based only on the person of Christ. And if you have Christ, you have life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have life. The guarantee is to all the offspring of faith. An heir of the world. Let's go back to that phrase because the scripture says that Abraham is the father of us all. I thought, according to the book of Genesis, that when the promise was made to Abraham, he was given a track of land that we call Israel today. And in fact, in the Zionist movement that built the state of Israel in 1948, they focused on all the promises given to Abraham, primarily on the land. You come to the New Testament, and there's no focus on the land. But instead of just a small track of land the size of New Jersey, Abraham's an heir of the world. How can that be? God's going to make him a father of many nations, as we already read from verse 17. He is the father of all who believe, which means all peoples from every nation. And everyone who comes to put their faith and trust in Christ must come yielding to him, surrendering to him, right? And it's the meek. Who shall inherit what? The earth, because in Jesus Christ, Abraham's an heir of the world. The promises fulfilled in Christ include the universal dominion of the Messiah when he comes, so that everything that exists will be under his power. Oh, not just a little track of land, it's more than that. For 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Does that mean that everyone in the world is going to be saved? Oh, no. But it means that God is going to save a world, save the world, by the sacrifice of his Son and the promise given to Abraham makes him an heir, and we are joint heirs because of belief in Jesus Christ. So you come to verse 17, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. Abraham is our father in the sight of God, the God in whom he believed. 
the God who gives life to the dead, the God who calls into being things that were not. So here's the second characteristic of the, of the God who is, the Father, our heavenly Father, who is to be hallowed, Abraham's God, he is the God of astounding grace, and he is the God of outrageous power. What kind of power? He gives life to the dead. Now that's really going to be good for Abraham because he and his wife are both dead when it comes to having children. And the whole promise is about having a child. He's the one who gives life to the dead. That's good for us because the Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians, we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Oh, but grace steps in, the God of grace, and with all power brings to life that which is dead and brings into existence that which doesn't exist. Two things, resurrection and creation are demonstrated in the fiat of God. And when he proclaims, life is the result, Abraham experiences both. And he ends up having a race, a posterity, like the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea that no one can number. But I'll tell you, when he was about 98 years old, it didn't look so good. He'd had a promise, but just problems piled one on top of the other. And he had a long time to begin to think that the God who makes the promise apparently is the God who's not going to fulfill it. So now we ask the question, what about Abraham's faith? What about Abraham's God? And what about Abraham's faith? And what kind of faith should we have? Or what kind of faith do we have in God? Before we talk about the faith in particular, let me add one more thought about the character of God who's astounding in his grace, outrageous in his power. It knows no limits. And he is unquestionably reliable. God is totally reliable. And so, verse 18, against hope, Abraham in hope believed. Think about that for a moment. Study Genesis. Read those chapters that talk about Abraham questioning God. Offering to God another solution since apparently God wasn't going to give him a son. Concerned all of the time. The situation was grim. No hope to be found. And by the way, faith lives in a no hope world. Everything in our world is in opposition to the promises of God and requires from us trust in the Lord. Faith in the God of the impossible is the only thing that gives birth to hope. I have no hope for this world 
except Jesus Christ. Honestly, I don't. And whatever hope I might have had before has now been taken away, and I could be a cynic like real quick if I take my eyes off the God of Abraham, my father. Abraham's faith was not born in ease, but he believed the promise of God that became an anchor to his soul. Here's the thing. Abraham didn't see, just focus on what was around him. He didn't neglect that. He wasn't whistling in the dark. He wasn't trying to make his mind believe what he knew wasn't true. That's not Abraham. In fact, it says to us that Abraham, verse 19, faced the facts that his body was dead. And being 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Abraham couldn't beget, and Sarah couldn't conceive, and God says, you're going to have a son. And what do you say to that? Two things you can say. Lord, from human reason, everything that's reasonable, this is ludicrous and won't work. You can say that. Or you can look above the problems and see the God who is. To see the God who is. You and I are supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. And yet sight is what fuels our Christian beliefs. I mean, when you think about it, God said you're going to have immortality but all we see around us is people are people dying God says righteousness will cover the earth and you are righteous and yet we see more and more wickedness in our world and we see our own sin as well God says I am kind and benevolent to you and yet the circumstances around us the loss of loved ones, the accidents, the sickness of friends, we begin to think everything speaks against it. But who are you going to believe, Abraham? Who are you going to believe? And although Abraham questioned God, his questions never canceled his faith. He faced the facts, verse 19, And the facts were horrible, and faith was struggling, but he was not weakened in his faith. Verse 20 says, and these are some of my favorite verses on faith. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but God Strengthened, he was strengthened in his faith or by his faith, perhaps a a better translation, in his faith, by his faith, and gave glory to God. Did you notice that faith can be weak? Verse 19, and is often weakened by the trials around us. Or it can be strengthened, verse 20, and it is strengthened in the midst of the trials around us. God's promise transformed Abraham, 
who could have easily given in to despair. And he was strengthened in his faith. Why? Because he had a promise. Why? Because the promise came from the God with all power who makes the dead live. Now, you and I live after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our faith should be stronger than Abraham's. We've got a great example of this in the resurrection of Christ as Paul's going to bring up. When Abraham was told, and this, I can't imagine how hard this was for him. When Abraham was told after Isaac was born to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, remember that story? But God, (laughs) I've been waiting for this kid, you know how long, and I believed you would give him, and now he's here, and now you tell me to kill him? Nothing seems right about that. This isn't, this isn't consistent with your character. It certainly does not go according to your promise. He could have said, no, I won't do it. But he gave glory to God. How do you give glory to God? Believe him. Believe him. By the way, faith is very reasonable. Faith does not ask you to embrace That which isn't true. Faith cries to you, see God. And know he's the one who blesses those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So when you come to God, you must believe that he he is. He is God. The God of all power. The God who can create something out of nothing. In Jeremiah chapter 32, I am the Lord your God. Is there anything too hard for me? (laughs) I spoke and worlds came into being. Remember that? You weren't there, but I told you about it. Nothing's too hard for me. Believe it. And that's exactly what Abraham did. He did not waver. Now, I've always wondered about verse 20. Abraham did not waver through unbelief. And I go back and read the story, and I say, that sounds like a whole lot of wavering to me. You ever done that? David, believe me with all, followed me with all of his heart. Uh, Excuse me, Lord. uh, I know of one time when he didn't. But grace, (laughs) this is good. Grace looks over my sin. And washes it away. And gives strength where I have none of my own. And in the end, he embraced the promise of God and was strengthened in his faith. Gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God, who made the promise, has the power to make it happen. Do you believe that? I do, but I don't. I believe. Sunday morning church, especially when I'm preaching, I believe. Help my unbelief on Tuesday. Because the pressures of life are so unbelievable. How in the world can I get through? There is a God who brings life from the dead 
and brings into existence things that are not there now. And Abraham said, I'm going to hitch my wagon to that God. And believing him, fully persuaded that God has all the power he needs. Read Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says, I want you to know God. I want you to see the riches of his grace toward you. And I want you to know the exceeding greatness of his power that is in you. It's the same power that he used in raising Jesus from the dead. Get to know that. And live in the light of that amazing power. Faith, which doubts God's ability to honor his promise, constitutes a theft against God's glory. We rob God of glory every time we doubt him. No honor can be given but to trust him. No greater honor can be given to God but to trust him. And No greater dishonor can be done to him than to refuse his grace and discard his promise. So it's time for us to believe in our Heavenly Father with all of our hearts. The obstacles are not insurmountable because God is above them. And the hardest thing in life is to believe that God is above your problems, that he knows, he cares, and he's got a plan. And faith says he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Verse 22, and this is why. This is why it was credited to him for righteousness, because he had genuine faith and believed God. Verse 23, the words, it was credited to him, written not just for Abraham alone. If you ever needed a portion of scripture that shows the rich application of the Bible to yourself, here it is. It's not just to Abraham, it's for you. This passage is for you. Abraham is your father. I hope you honor your father if he is still living. If he was a bad father, pray for grace to overcome such feelings and recognize you have a perfect heavenly father if you believe in him. And honor our Heavenly Father on Father's Day by believing in him. Verse 23, for it was credited to him, and those words are written not just for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. That is, to us who believe in this God who raised Jesus up from the dead. Everything For the Apostle Paul culminates in the person of Christ. All the word of God is about him. All the word of God is focused on him. The promise is not just a promise for a son Isaac. It's the promise of a seed that will result in the Lord Jesus. Read Galatians chapter 3. Paul makes it abundantly clear. So all the promises of God in Christ are yes. God says yes to the world in the promise of Abraham. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God says yes to you with righteousness and all is forgiven. And he ends this chapter with probably 
what is a creedal statement, a well-known aphorism, uh, perhaps a slogan, a motto used among believers in that day. Verse 25, Jesus was delivered over for death, delivered to death for our sins, handed over by God, betrayed by Judas, but he was raised to life for our justification. All because of God's amazing grace. I'm sure glad I wasn't in the place of Abraham. And I'm sure glad that God's grace so touched his heart that he gave us a wonderful example and declared to us in his belief, the God who is, and how we must fully be persuaded in trusting him. And when we do, we realize Jesus was delivered up to death for our sins, but he was raised again for life. Let's pray. In hope against all human hope, self-desperate, I believe. Faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone, laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. The words of Wesley's hymn remind us that against all hope is a God who is the epitome of hope, who can give us an everlasting hope as an anchor of the soul and will deliver to us in Jesus Christ the life that never ends. Oh Lord, make it real to us today. In your name we pray, amen.